Good evening, my fellow true crime addicts, and welcome to True Crime Spirits, the podcast where I tell you a true crime tale while I brought in my taste buds by trying a new adult beverage each episode. I am your host, Brandy. Um, so a few weeks ago, a family friend came to see us and they brought some homemade wine. Now, I just kept thinking about the homemade hooch my dad tried to pass off as wine. I wanted to be supportive, but I was, I don't know, I was less enthused. However, the wine that this guy brought was actually better than your typical uh, gas station wine. It wasn't in a random dark colored bottle um, that had the label peeled off. Mm -mm. No, this was packaged very nicely in a clear 750 milliliter bottle and even has a pretty awesome label on it. Um, the design's pretty neat and even hearing the process on making this wine was kind of fun. I unfortunately don't remember any of it. Um, but, uh, I do remember that he's taken up two rooms in their house with this little hobby of his. Um, he left like six different types of wine. So tonight I'm going to be trying out Warlock. Um, it's a Blackberry Cabernet. Now the, um, the bottle doesn't have any like descripting factors on it or any, um, alcohol, uh, level per volume, but I do remember him saying that this was, I think 14 or 15%. Um, fun little tidbit. I chose the Warlock because it was bottled in April. And I do remember when he was telling me about the process is that, um, the wine's pretty good directly after it's bottled. And then when it hits like the two to three month mark, it becomes, um, very tart, I guess, as it's maturing and things like that. And it's, it's not exactly the best, but then after the four month mark, it becomes even more enjoyable to drink. So this being bottled in April, I figured that I would have a better, um, I would probably enjoy this better since it is now August and the other bottles were bottled in June. So, um, here we go. Let's get this open. Hmm. Smells delicious. I hope it tastes just as good as it smells. Hmm. That blackberry is strong. All right, here we go. Hmm. 
Alright. And becomes um, clumsy, and I tend to get excited while I'm doing these recordings. Let me just put that cork right back in. I don't need to be staining my carpets with red wine over here. Um, hold on. Okay. Hmm. I'm telling you guys, this smells really good. I have a feeling I might get a little tipsy tonight if I, depending on how quickly I drink this, so. Mmm. That is very, very delicious. Very fruity. I don't know if I told you guys, this is called Moody's Elixir. Um, I don't know how you get this in your house. Like, I'm pretty sure if I contacted him, he would, you know, send me some, but he really needs to sell this. This is so good. Mm. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Enjoying that way too much. So, let's see. Last episode, I don't... I don't really know what happened. I'm sure you guys all noticed I sounded a bit like a chipmunk. And that was uh, a bit embarrassing. Um, and of course it had to be the episode that's probably the most messed up ones that I've done. Probably will do. And uh, hopefully this week I sound normal, at least. Um... I guess that'll teach me not to actually listen to the finished product before I post it, um, because, like I said, that was, that was a little embarrassing, but I think I've got it fixed, so I should be good, um, but anyway, tonight we are going to talk about a man who felt that he needed to get revenge on Alexandria's elite. Now, Alexandria, Virginia is the type of place where people leave their doors unlocked because crime simply doesn't happen there. But all that would change when a woman was found murdered in her home and then the perpetrator murdered two more people over the span of a decade before he got careless and left a, wet, a witness that more or less led to his capture. Let's get into that. Alright, so tonight we're talking about Charles Stannard Server. Ser excuse me. Severance. <laughs> like a character from Harry Potter. <laughs> he was born September 25th, 1960. There's not a lot known about his earlier years. I was able to find that he graduated from college in 1986 with a degree in mechanical engineering. Uh, after graduating college, he was sporadically employed because he had difficulties with his employers. In 1988, uh, Charles's family began to notice that he started acting erratically, but 
He never received any significant mental health treatment. Now, you don't really hear about him until he began a relationship with Tamala Nichols in 1998. Uh, the two lived together in Alexandria, um, and they had a child, Levi. He was born in April of 1999. Now, shortly after his birth, Charles and Tamala started having problems with their relationship. And in March of 2000, Tamala moved out, taking Levi with her. Uh, the two went through an ugly custody battle where ultimately she was granted sole legal and physical custody of Levi. There was no visitation rights awarded to Charles and Sheriff Dunning, who actually happens to be the husband of our first victim we're going to talk about, he served those custody papers to him. And after the court proceedings, uh, Charles wrote some really threatening letters to Tamala. Um, for years after the custody battle, Charles became upset and irrational, and when the subject arose, he would become qu argumentative quickly, and he would denounce the police and the, quote, enforcement class. Charles was illogical when discussing the issue. He would use repetitive phrases such as tomahawking the homestead. This is a phrase that I'm not very familiar with, so I did a little side googling. Um, this term basically means like squatting on land and building a cabin, growing crops, however small, to lay claim to that land. Um, I don't really know how Charles thought this term was relevant, but um, I guess as I was doing more research, uh, according to his girlfriend, and not Tamala, but um, the girlfriend he was with when he got caught, according to her, tomahawking the homestead meant that you would protect your home so if there was a threat to you or your family, well, you were entitled to kill those people. Anyway, so moving on. Um, due to his behavior, his family became... Um, concerned about his mental health, but he was distrustful of the mental health system, and he actually became upset with his parents when he found out that they were attending meetings within an organization that assisted parents with children who were suffering from mental health disorders. Um, oh, I did, in my research, I did find out that I guess because anyone can, Charles ran for mayor of Alexandria in a 1996 special election and 2000 as well for Congress for the 8th District. While on his campaign trail, Charles displayed some unusual and erratic behavior. He would appear at the events dressed entirely in black 
with a cloak and sunglasses. And on several occasions during his campaigns, he became violent. In one instance, during a forum in 96, he picked up a mag- an American flag and pointed the spike finial at Representative Jim Morin before running out of the building. <laughs> and at another forum in 2000, Charles punched one of the organizers. Now, he ran on the platform that was condemning the mental health institutions and also psychotropic drug prescriptions. Uh, During his run for mayor, he would respond to every question by transitioning to talk about these topics. In a statement in 2000, he said that, quote, a plague of child and adolescent psychiatry threatened to overwhelm Alexandria. He went on to say, quote, terrorism, child exploitation, and adolescent abuse by child and adolescent psychiatrists who peddle dope for profit under the guise of academia and clinical practice must be eradicated. To no one's surprise... He was defeated in all three of his campaigns. Alright, now, um, he had three victims that we're going to talk about. Uh, Starting with the first one, we have Nancy Dunning. She was a well-known real estate agent who lived in Alexandria. She was married to the sheriff, James Dunning. Um, who had held that position since 1985. On December 5th, 2003, Mrs. Dunning made plans to meet her husband and son for lunch, and they became concerned when she had not arrived. She had told her son that she was going to stop at Target before meeting them, And then after lunch, when she didn't show up, her son drove to the Dunning residence and um, noticed that the garage door was open and his mother's car was was actually in the garage. So he went inside and he saw the bags from Target in the family room. And then he found his mother lying in the front hallway, unresponsive, with blood on her face. The front door was closed, but unlocked, and nothing was out of place or missing from the residence. Crime scene investigators found no evidence of forced entry. Uh, They found a small caliber bullet and a blood smear that was located on the front door. At the time, uh, Alexandria had the their sorry. At the time, Alexandria police only had a fleeting glimpse of a potential suspect. Cops went back to the surveillance video from Target, and it showed Nancy shopping earlier that day. On the video, cops were able to see a white male probably in his early 30s, wearing a black leather jacket and had very short, close-cropped hair with a prominent widow's peak. He seemed to be following Nancy from aisle to aisle, 
He keeps his distance, but you can see that he's tracking her movements throughout the store. And as soon as Nancy leaves the store, you see him following her directly out of the store. But because of the quality of the video, cops weren't able to positively identify the man. But they broadcasted the surveillance video on the local news and hoped that someone would come forward with the identity of the man. Um, unfortunately, this didn't generate any leads. So with no other suspects, Nancy's husband became the only person of interest in the investigation. But he was never officially considered a suspect. Unfortunately, the people of this small, quiet town had already convicted him in the court of the public opinion. So after Nancy's murder, he ended up leaving Alexandria and settled in Hilton Head, South Carolina. Jim ended up dropping off the map, and he rarely stayed in touch with his friends in the years before his death in July of 2012. Nearly a decade later, another murder was committed with a very similar M.O. Of course, police weren't 100% certain but they were starting to think that maybe they had a serial killer in their midst. Now, Ronald Kirby, the director of transportation planning for suburban Maryland, the District of Columbia, and Virginia, lived with his wife in Alexandria, Virginia. Anne and Ron bought their dream home in the exclusive neighborhood. Only the city's elite could afford to live there. But Ron liked it because it was safe and close to his kids, Joe and Marilyn. Ron and his first wife had adopted Marilyn and her brother Joe from the Philippines when they were toddlers. It was a cool fall morning of November 11, 2013. Ron had decided to stay home from work that day, and Anne left for a doctor's appointment. And so Ron retreated to his favorite chair in the living room. He was waiting for the plumber to arrive. Daniel Petrillo, the plumber, testified that he spoke to Ronald at 11.32 a.m. and told him that he was on his way. When Daniel arrived at 11:42 no one answered the door he tried to call ron but no one answered so he left shortly after 12 ronald's son went into his father's residence that day and found the front door closed but unlocked he called 911 when he discovered his father lying on his back near the door Emergency personnel arrived at approximately 12.30 p.m. and found gunshot wounds in Ron's chest. Bullets and bullet fragments were recovered from the scene. The crime scene investigator said that there were no signs of forced sentry, nothing was disturbed at the scene, and Ronald's wallet, watch, and wedding ring were on his body nothing was taken 
But before anyone in the family can even begin to grieve this painful loss, they're shocked to find out that they're in the line of fire. His wife was taken to the police station in a police car and instantly was questioned about asking her, sorry, police started questioning her if she had killed Ron. They asked the children who could possibly want to harm him. No one saw anything and there was no one at home at the time of the murder. There were no strange fingerprints at the scene and no murder weapon was recovered from the home. The only odd clue were three silent but deadly subsonic shell casings. It's a rarely used, slow-traveling bullet designed to muffle sound when fired, and apparently it worked to perfection. Cops were also finding it hard to believe a stranger would just walk up to Ron's front door and open fire in broad daylight, especially in the upscale neighborhood of Alexandria. So the investigators zero in on a person of interest, the son, who had found his father, Joe. Joe was covered in blood when cops arrived at the scene. He told detectives he was supposed to meet his dad for lunch, but found his father on the floor and tried to administer CPR. Marilyn never believed her brother was capable of killing her father, and she wondered if maybe it was something her dad knew, or maybe someone who carried a grudge against her father. The family just couldn't believe that Joe would ever hurt his dad, and they had theories of their own, thinking maybe it could be some psycho still angry over the building of the Woodrow Wilson Bridge. For months, the family lived under a dark cloud of suspicion, as no other suspects emerged. Um, Dr. Jocelyn Postumus, Postumus, <laughs> the medical examiner was, who performed the autopsy, said that uh, Ron died as a result of gunshot wounds to his chest. She was able to recover three bullets from his body two from his chest and one from his left hip. She also identified the gunshot wounds to Ron's right hand because two other bullets were found at the scene. Uh, she said that the five bullets had been fired from a distance more than two or three feet. Uh, Daniel said that on his way to Ronald's house, he noticed construction crews composed of Hispanic men, but he did notice a, on one white man who stuck out walking down the street. This man was wearing a faded flannel shirt and did resemble Charles. Uh, February 6, 2014, Ruth Ann Lodato, the sister of Alexandria General District Court Judge and the daughter of Alexandria Circuit Court Judge, lived with her husband and mother in Alexandria. Janet Franco worked at the residence as a caretaker for Lodato's mother. At 11.30 a.m., Franco heard the doorbell ring and a boom followed by a scream. 
She ran to the door and encountered a bearded white man who was 50 to 60 years of age. She saw the man holding something round from his sleeve, heard another boom, and felt a hard pain as she was shot in the arm. Franco ran out of the back door and told the neighbor to call 911. When Officer Jonathan Lopez responded to the scene, he found Lodato lying on the floor. Franco told him that she had no idea who shot her, but described him as an older white male with a gray beard. She was taken to the emergency room, and the following day she helped police prepare a sketch of the man who shot her. She was able to identify Charles Severance from a photo array during the court, and during court, she testified that she was certain that Charles was the man who shot her. Now, CSI revealed no signs of forced entry again, and nothing was stolen from the house, although I'm pretty sure even if this perpetrator had been stealing stuff from the house... I don't think he had time, especially when Franco came down. Dr. Nikki Mortzinos, she was the medical examiner who performed the autopsy on Lodato. And she had died, of course, as the result of the gunshot wound. Mortzinos stated that one entrance was quite small, which indicated that it was made by a small caliber weapon typically a 22 caliber. Marlene Wahowiak, I'm guessing that's how you say it, she was a neighbor of the Lodatos, and she called police the day after the shooting. She told them that weeks before the murder, she kept seeing a man with a fully gray beard and messy hair she said he looked out of place because he wasn't dressed appropriately for the weather. Police showed her the sketch they made from Janet's description, and she told him that was definitely the man that she kept seeing in the neighborhood. Um, less than half a mile from the Lodato's home, there was a house that caught uh, Charles car making his getaway two minutes after Ruth Ann was murdered. On the video, you could see a maroon station wagon traveling away from the general location. Unfortunately, the video was too grainy to read the license plate, but the police do notice something about unique about the car. They said they saw a white blob on the back of the bumper. Now, on February 10th, 2014, armed with the sketch of the suspect and the video of the car, the chief of police decided to uh, hold a press conference, and they pleaded for the public's help in identifying this man. Law enforcement were hesitant to tell the public that the first two unsolved murders were related. They didn't want the public to panic. Um, but if you remember, though, as I mentioned, <clears throat> the shells recovered from Nancy and Ron's crimes were of the same ammo. 
So the odds of multiple people killing in the same MO and even using the same rare ammo are significantly low. But hey, I get it. Police weren't trying to have the town in a panic. At a press conference on March 6, 2014, the Alexandria police chief announced that based on ballistics testing, there was a definite link between the Dunning, Kirby, and the Lodato homicides. Then, this just made calls flood into the tip line, but there was one bizarre call that pointed the finger at a former Alexandria mayoral candidate named Charles Severance. This tip went on to say that during one of his campaigns, he did not want the Woodrow Wilson Bridge going through the south part of Alexandria. And since Ronald was instrumental in the bridge being built, the cops decided they needed to pay Charles a visit. That same day, an Alexandria Police Department investigator attempted to contact Charles by leaving a business card. Later, the detective received an email from Charles's email account stating, I've received your business card. Period. There was no mention as to whether uh, Charles was going to meet with the detective. And before any follow-up could be done, another call comes in. This one is from the Russian embassy. On March 7th, Charles went to the Russian embassy where he said that he was seeking asylum. He told Secret Service agents who approached him that, quote, he had been persecuted by the city of Alexandria for the last dozen years, and the police were trying to get revenge on him for running for mayor. The Secret Service agents escorted him to his car. They photographed the vehicle and gave the photographs to Alexandria detectives. The detectives recognized Charles' car as the same vehicle that appeared in surveillance video driving on West Braddock Road following the Lodato murder. Severance returned to his girlfriend's house and told her that instead of contacting to the, the police, he was going camping. At that point, she told him to just pack all his things and not come back. So Charles left the residence on March 10th, 2014. Uh, the police executed a search warrant on his girlfriend's house on March 12th. Charles had been living with his girlfriend, Robra, I, must, I guess that's her name, <laughs> since 2011. Charles often told her he was treated unfairly by the Alexandria court system during his custody battle with Tamala. He also mentioned killing judges, police officers, and their families. In 2012, Charles suggested to his girlfriend that she should buy two 22 caliber North American arm revolvers 
He told her that he couldn't possess guns because of a prior felony conviction. And she also bought a Remington 22 low-velocity subsonic ammunition. She had discovered that this ammo to be missing when Charles left her house on March 10th. During the execution of the search warrant on the 12th, police found the they found two Remington 22 caliber shell casings on the garage floor. Robra told police she didn't know how they got there. She never refired the revolvers, and they also recovered a box of Remington 22 long rifle plane lead hollow point subsonic ammunition in an area of the home where Charles stored his possessions. Forty round of ammo were found in the 50 round capacity box. Now, Charles was actually arrested the, a day later in Willing, West Virginia for weapons charges. At the time of his arrest, Charles's vehicle was searched and found to contain a gun cleaning kit, his passport, a green notebook, various items of clothing, two bags of latex gloves, and a approximately 1700 bucks in cash. The green notebook, however, was the most damning thing found in his car. Police called it his, quote, manifesto of hate. In it, he wrote about murdering people, about his motives for murdering people, and about his obsession with North American firearms. He also wrote some things. I don't. I can't find the context of it or anything that, you know, goes with this, but he actually wrote the things of scream of a victim echoes to eternity and subsonic ammunition makes sweet, sweet music. But the most disturbing was a poem to the city's elite that he had titled parable of the knocker. Now I couldn't find the poem in its entirety. However, I did find that he finished the poem with this chilling line. Knock, talk, enter, kill, exit, murder, murder, wisdom. One of the writings said, Introduce murder into a safe and secure neighborhood. It shudders with horror. Do it again and again and again. Charles also wrote about his preferred firearm and what almost seemed as if to be a letter to his son. Police say Charles was holding a decade-long grudge for the loss of his little boy in that nasty child custody case I mentioned earlier. And in his twisted mind, murdering people in power or their family members was his only revenge. During a bond hearing, Charles's lawyer called the charges a sham. He was being held on bond for $100,000, then without bond, then for $100,000. He said Charles should only face extradition for the low-level Class 6 felony, and that the bond should reflect that. 
He said that if the arrest warrant is intended to allow an investigation into other matters, then the extradition must be dismissed as improper. His lawyer practically accused law enforcement of violating Charles's constitutional right and arrested him on lesser charges so that they could extradite him back to Alexandria so they could question him and make their case for the slayings. This argument didn't work and his bond was reset to $100,000 with an extradition hearing set for the 31st of March. In the end, Charles was extradited to Alexandria and law enforcement were able to arrest him for the murders of Nancy Dunning, Ronald Kirby, and Ruth Ann Lodato. His trial was held October 8th through November 2nd, 2015. At the trial, the evidence connected Charles both directly and circumstantially to the crimes. Witnesses testified to seeing Charles in the area before and after the crimes were committed. A Virginia state trooper testified that he pulled Charles over six months after Nancy's murder and found him in possession of the same type of weapon she was killed with. An investigator showed the court that the murders took place within a few miles of one another and that at one point, Charles had even lived a couple miles from Nancy before her murder. Several firearms experts testified that the bullets used in all three shootings were of the same type of weapon, were from the same type of weapon, and that the bullets were consistent with the ammunition that was recovered from his girlfriend's house. And despite his terrifying manifesto of murder, Charles Severance attorneys Joseph King and Chris Liebig tried to use the strategy that the cops simply just got the wrong guy. They tried to deny that the writings found in his journal could directly link him to Alexandria. The defense paraded their own witnesses to testify that that man in the surveillance video was not Charles. However, even the best defense attorney couldn't do anything against Janet Franco, the sole survivor of the attack on Ruth Ann Lodato. She was able to just point right to him and identify him in the courtroom, and that was enough for the jury to find Charles Severance guilty of all three murders. After about two full days of deliberation, Charles Stannard Severance was convicted of two counts of capital murder for the deaths of Ronald Kirby and Ruth Ann Lodato, one count of first-degree murder for the death of Nancy Dunning, and other related charges. The court imposed the jury's verdict of three life sentences for the murder convictions, plus 48 years of incarceration for the other related charges. Now, Charles tried to appeal the charges on the basis of three errors. All right, get ready for this, guys. He said that the court erred in denying Charles' motion to sever the Dunning case from the other two murder cases. Overall, the decision to sever the cases ultimately lies with the justice unless there's evidence of abuse of power. However, there was actually no reason to think these cases needed to be severed, because according to evidence and motive, all three crimes were linked. Um, he 
also was uh, trying to appeal because he said that uh, they denied motion to be struck from denied the motion to be struck from the evidence. He was claiming that his defense had brought enough evidence to prove that the individual in the target surveillance video was not him. So that that needed to be struck from the evidence of the Nancy Dunning case. This was also his reason for separating her murder case from the other two. However, the jury had the freedom to decide that even if he wasn't in the video, he was still responsible for her murder because of the ballistic evidence presented. And number three, he was appealing because they sentenced him for both capital murder conviction. Charles argued that the court violated his Fifth Amendment right against double jeopardy by sentencing him for the capital murders on both Lodato and Kirby. He asserts that the two life sentences he received punished him for the same conduct. At the risk of sounding too sarcastic, guys, in the prosecution for two crimes in the same trial, the double jeopardy defense does not apply. His appeal was denied, and the court told him to get out of here with that nonsense. His sentencing was held on January 22nd, and he was sentenced to three life terms, plus 48 years for the other weapons charges. Unfortunately, Sheriff Jim Dunning died before he was vindicated. After the trial, the Dunning's daughter, Elizabeth Dunning, said her gratitude for the verdict is mixed with anguish because her father died before he was vindicated. In a victim impact statement to the jury, she said that her kids called their grandmother, who died before they were born, Grandma Happy Face, because she's always smiling in family pictures. Ugh, that just, that just rips my heartstrings right there. That's so sad. Um, uh, as per prison records, Charles is currently still incarcerated at Marion Correctional Treatment Center in Smith County. All right. Well, guys, I that is it for me. I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. You can follow my page on Facebook at True Crime Spirits. Follow me on Twitter at ha- Crime Spirits. Check out my Instagram at True Crime Spirits. Or just shoot me an email at truecrimespirits at gmail.com. You can find my podcast on many platforms. So until next time, stay safe out there and good night.